Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Cameras at a vote counting center in a major swing county in Nevada went dark overnight. Officials say no one entered the ballot room during the time, but questions remain. What do midterm results show us thus far? Is the Republican Party out of touch or not doing enough? A new take on conservatism from a senior journalist at The Federalist. Three days after the midterms, Biden's student loan cancellation program comes to a halt. What the White House says and why a court ruled it illegal. A woman who consented to cross-sex surgery at 15 years old plans to sue the doctors who removed her breasts. Her attorney says the procedure was illegal. And heart injuries in many people who got their third COVID vaccine. That's what researchers in Switzerland say they've found. We hear from a cardiologist who says the findings could significantly impact the general population. Over in Nevada, election officials are still counting the ballots, but cameras at the vote counting center in a key county went dark Wednesday night, and it's fueling concerns about election security. In Washoe County, Nevada, cameras at the vote counting facility stopped broadcasting overnight on Wednesday. The facility is still counting midterm ballots. A spokesperson for the county said that the live stream app that provides the feeds lost connection with the cameras at around 11.30 p.m. on Wednesday. All staff members left for the night about an hour before the issue, and none returned until 7 a.m. the next day. Officials said they restored the connection just before 8 a.m. on Thursday. The Washoe County Security Administrator reviewed security cameras at the building. According to the administrator, no one entered the ballot room or registrar's office while the live feeds were cut off. Washoe County is Nevada's second most populous county, with close to a half a million residents. It includes the city of Reno. County officials are now suggesting that in the future they will look for a solution to prevent software disruptions or simply not offer a courtesy live stream feed. Vote counting in Nevada could take days. As of Friday evening, Republican Joe Lombardo is leading Democratic incumbent Steve Sisolak in the race for governor, and Republican Adam Lixalt is leading Democratic incumbent Catherine Masto in the race for senator. Results from Arizona and Alaska are also too early to call. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And Nevada's largest county still has more than 50,000 ballots to count as of today, according to Clark County's top election official. That number is for mail-in ballots. About 30% of those ballots were expected to be tabulated today. The rest are being inspected by the county's counting board, which verifies signatures and does other work. After that chunk is processed, the votes will be tabulated. Mail-in ballots that are postmarked on or before Election Day must be counted as long as they're received by 5 p.m. on Saturday per state law. Voters also have until November 15th to cure or fix an issue with their ballot. Clark County must send the election results to the Nevada Secretary of State's office on or before November 17th. And as we all watch closely while the vote count continues, pundits and politicians are drawing lessons from the election's outcomes. Are there any blind spots? What's the bigger picture? Earlier today, I spoke with a senior editor at The Federalist, John Daniel Davidson, who suggests the outcome and the logic behind it may not be quite what you think. John Daniel Davidson, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, a popular perspective circulating about the midterms is that abortion motivated young people to vote, which helped stop a red wave. 
But you're saying that Republicans could have won more seats with a stronger conservative stance. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, the idea that there wasn't a red wave, I don't think is quite right, because there were multiple red waves. They were just localized to certain states. You look at a state like Florida, which everybody talked about, but also in Texas, also in a few other places. Their Republicans did very well, and there was one thing that they had in common. They had governors and state legislatures that had took bold action and passed anti-abortion legislation after the Dobbs decision came out. And that was something, you know, of course, the uh, conventional wisdom and the establishment media thought, oh, you know, Dobbs is going to wipe out Republican games, gains in the midterms. Uh, it's going to, you know, cause a lot of uh, Democrat voters to come out. And that did happen in certain places. Uh, but in key red states, you saw voters responding to bold, ambitious leadership uh, political leaders who were willing to stand by their convictions on abortion and actually put their money where their mouth was and pass laws, as opposed to a lot of c candidates that took the Beltway consultants' advice and tried to kind of dodge the issue or didn't want to be pinned down on it. And I think, of course, of Michigan, a state where Republicans got totally uh, wiped out, uh, and they allowed the Democrats to run this referendum without putting forward any vision or any plan for abortion regulation of their own in that state. So they sort of accepted the left's terms on the issue. Now, you've said that conservatives should stop thinking of themselves as conservatives and That's start right. thinking of themselves yeah, as radicals, restorationists, and counter-revolutionaries. Could you dig into that a little more? Well, that goes back to what I was saying about having a vision and being getting comfortable with wielding power, not always being so defensive. Most of the victories of the conservative movement, certainly over the past 30 years, have been defensive victories. And even the Dobbs decision, uh, as, a, as a Supreme Court decision sort of handed down from on high, was a defensive vi victory. It didn't end abortion. It didn't even follow through on its own internal constitutional logic, which is that the 14th Amendment should obviously protect the unborn as well. Uh, so my argument is that the conservatives have too long stayed in this defensive crouch, and we need to start thinking of ourselves uh, not as trying to stop the forward progress of history, but as fighting back with a positive message, a bold action, and a plan for how to govern in the American interest and use political power to advance the common good. The conservative doctrine errs on the side of less government control, but this approach may necessitate government intervention. What do you say to concerns about government overreach? Yeah, I, I, my response to that might be what Abraham Lincoln's response was uh, during the Civil War when they said, well, you know, President Lincoln, aren't you worried about this executive overreach? Well, we'll worry about that after we've won the war, right? Uh, we are in a fight for the republic right now, and if we do not beat the left and we do not uh, dismantle the tyranny machine that the left has been building for 100 years, we won't have a republic, and it won't matter whether or not we've we've you know expanded government too much or conservatives have been too liberal in their use of government power. As far as I'm concerned, those are academic questions at this point. We have got to save the country, and so we need to do whatever we have to do to save the country. We are facing an opposition that wants to transform America and destroy the republic, destroy the Constitution. If we want to save any of those things, uh, then we can't have qualms at this point about wielding power. First you have to win it, and then you have to wield it, and we've got to get comfortable with that.
Conservatives in the U.S. today tend to have more skepticism about how well their democracy is functioning. How can a reimagined conservative movement overcome this, do you think? One of the ways that we can overcome it is by getting a Republican leadership class that actually respects and responds to the concerns of working class, normal American people. The Republican Party is becoming a party of the working class, as the Democratic coalition is very clearly now a coalition mostly of uh, college-educated, urban-dwelling, upper-middle-class people. Republicans have got to get a vision that actually improves the lives of working-class Americans. Mitch McConnell very pointedly did not want Republicans to run on an agenda in the midterms. It was enough, in his view, to just run against Democrats, to just run against Joe Biden. Kevin McCarthy was much the same. That's not going to cut it anymore. They need a positive vision for the future for voters to latch on to. All right. Thank you so much, John Daniel Davidson, senior editor at The Federalist. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And former President Donald Trump will announce next Tuesday that he's running for president. That's according to one of his advisors, Jason Miller. Some Republicans have called on him to hold off due to the pending Georgia Senate runoff election. Miller told Steve Bannon's war room today that it's going to be, quote, a very professional, very buttoned-up announcement. Miller added that Trump told him there doesn't need to be any question about his plans. Trump has often suggested he'd run again, but this latest statement from Miller is the most explicit one yet about a possible 2024 White House bid. Trump hasn't issued a public comment on Miller's confirmation. And the November election was the most expensive midterm election ever. According to data compiled by Open Secrets, state and federal level campaigns spent nearly $17 billion. The host of NTD's The Nation Speaks, Cindy Drucker, spoke with two experts on election campaigns to learn more about political spending. Adam Goodman is a veteran political strategist of four decades and currently a consultant at Ballard & Associates. During an interview with NTD, he elaborated on what he's noticed in campaign ads over the years. There are four emotions that drive all of life as well as campaign ads. Love, hate, fear, and hope. Unfortunately, these days, most of it is about fear and hate as opposed to love and hope. According to Open Secrets, federal candidates and political committees spent $8.9 billion this midterm. The Senate race in Nevada was one of the top 10 most expensive races in 2022. Goodman put into context how much political campaigns cost. To place a 30-second ad on 60 Minutes in Reno is cost you about $12,000 if you do it from the campaign. If you do it from a super PAC, which is one of the outside groups, it's $150,000. And they're already saying that in Reno, in that relatively small to mid-sized media market, $25 million or more will be spent in the U.S. Senate seat, uh, seat campaign alone. That's enough. In past days, you'd say, gosh, if I had $25 million, I could buy a television station in Reno. Dan McMillan is the founder and executive director of Save Democracy in America, a nonpartisan group that seeks to change how election campaigns raise money. He explains to NDD that big industries are donating to both major parties, and the pharmaceutical industry is among the top donors. Nowadays, I think it's almost best to think of it as protection money, like, you know, mob extortion. It, it gives them a defense against what the political system might do to them. McMillan says that in recent years, donations under $200 have grown a lot, but they're still only 20% of the total. And they tend to go overwhelmingly to a few high-profile candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Overwhelmingly, it is from 
millionaires, suspect even more billionaires, so-called mega donors, um, corporations, industry pressure groups, and we don't know how much, but in, in, in 2020, at least one billion out of the 14.4 billion total was dark money. Well, we don't even know who the donors are, and that's a growing problem. You can watch the full interview with Adam Goodman and Dan McMillan on NTD's The Nation Speaks this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. President Biden's been touting his student loan cancellation program as relief for Americans. But starting today, the program is no longer taking applications. NTD's Iris Tao has more on what's going on. This year... The Biden administration has stopped taking applications for a student loan cancellation program. That's after a court ruled on Thursday evening that Biden's plan was illegal. And now on the application website, the original forum is down. And a note is up saying past applications will be put on hold while the administration seeks to overturn court orders. In mid-October, Biden announced his plan to cancel up to $20,000 worth of student debt for millions of borrowers. And here's Biden touting it while campaigning for Democrats days before the midterms. This is a game changer for so many people. And folks, despite what Republican officials say, we can afford this student loan program. It's also among the first things Biden brought up in a speech right after the election. And I especially want to thank the young people of this nation who I'm told, I haven't seen the numbers, uh, voted historic numbers again. <clears throat> they voted to continue addressing the climate crisis, gun violence, their personal rights and freedoms, and the student debt relief. The Thursday block comes after a federal judge in Texas rejected Biden's executive action, writing in his 26-page ruling, quote, In this country, we're not ruled by an all-powerful executive with a pen and a phone. A separate court order put the program on hold weeks ago, but administration still encouraged borrowers to keep applying regardless, as Biden previously vowed. Fighting them in court, we're not letting them get away with it. After the latest legal setback, the White House says it strongly disagreed with the decision, adding the Justice Department is appealing it. So far, some 26 million people have applied for debt cancellation, and 16 million requests have been approved. But now all they can do is to wait, as it could take months for the court to issue a final ruling on if they're getting anything. Reporting by Iris Tao, NTD News. Should doctors be held accountable for performing cross-sex procedures on consenting adolescents? One woman who underwent a procedure now plans to sue the hospital and the doctors involved. NTD's Arlene Richards has that story. At a young age, Chloe Cole agreed to let a gender transition surgeon perform a cross-sex procedure on her body, a life-altering decision she now deeply regrets. Yes. When I was 15 years old, I had a double mastectomy. They removed both of my breasts. At 12 years old, Cole and her parents trusted the doctors when they told her that she could become a different sex. From then on, I was basically affirmed in my gender identity without any questioning from any medical professionals, and they pushed transitioning as the way to treat gender dysphoria. On Thursday, Cole and her attorney appeared on Fox News to announce her intent to sue the medical professionals involved. Yes. I want to be able to create a precedent for other people who have been in my situation to find justice themselves. Cole's attorney said the procedure was illegal. 
our website at libertycenter.org has the letter, a very detailed letter that details all of the medical symptoms that Chloe has and the medical malpractice and, frankly, mutilation that was perpetrated by these medical professionals. Cole said she will never get back what she's lost. I don't even know if, because I was put on puberty blockers and testosterone at only 13 years old, I don't know if I'll even be able to conceive a child naturally. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And researchers in Switzerland found that one in every 35 people who get a third COVID shot suffer from heart damage. We spoke with a cardiologist who says those damages can have long-lasting effects and can even be fatal. Researchers at the University of Basel in Switzerland tested the cardiac troponin levels of almost 800 people who got their third COVID-19 vaccine. Measuring those levels is a standard practice for assessing heart damage. They found that 2.8%, or around one in every 35 people, had higher cardiac troponin levels. They say this indicates heart damage. The research found that the levels were back to normal after four days. We spoke with cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who says cardiac troponin levels usually go back to normal after four days, even after serious heart injuries. You know, four days is the standard elevation for a heart attack. So any damage to the heart takes several days to occur, and then the scar formation occurs later on, and then the scar could be the basis for a future cardiac arrest. And we've seen alarming case reports of young individuals dying suddenly with no other explanation. However, Dr. McCullough says even if such a scar forms, that can take time, and the effects of that might only be felt later on. This indicates that a large number of individuals who have taken the third dose have sustained heart injury, and many don't know about it. The leader of the study conducted in Switzerland says the findings shouldn't be ignored, but we also shouldn't place too much importance on them. McCullough disagrees. When it comes to safety, we should never uh, minimize safety signals. We should never just hand wave them away. That's irresponsible. All of this is very alarming. We should never be using a vaccine that could possibly cause even one case of fatal cardiac damage. As of November 1st, around 130,000 people got a booster every day on a seven-day average in the U.S. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. And on Twitter, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced that Texas has sent off its 300th bus of illegal immigrants. And that bus is headed for Chicago. Since April, Texas has bussed about 13,000 illegal border crossers to so-called sanctuary cities. That's according to a statement released from Abbott's office on November 4th. Washington, D.C., New York City, and Illinois have all declared states of emergency after receiving busloads of illegal immigrants. The Attorney General of Washington, D.C. is investigating whether Abbott might have misled the illegal immigrants into getting onto the buses. But Abbott has further tweeted that Texas will continue taking unprecedented action to relieve the overwhelmed border communities. In fiscal year 2022, a record-breaking 2 million people illegally crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, remember you can always email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a Marine veteran is giving back in an extraordinary way. He and a team of veterans are planning to skydive in all seven continents in an effort to help Gold Star families. 
And in the NBA, Nets all-star Kyrie Irving has served four games of his five-game minimum suspension. But when will he return? NTD's Dave Martin has the latest. That and more coming up. From all of us at NTD, happy Veterans Day to all U.S. veterans around the world. Thank you for your service. And on this Veterans Day, NTD's Jason Perry interviewed a Marine veteran who's giving back in an extraordinary way. There's hardly any videos online of people trying to jump into Antarctica, and it's going to be negative 70 degrees at altitude, so uh, not something that I've ever done before. Logan Stark is the VP of branding for Black Rifle Coffee. He and other veterans of different military branches are taking on a skydiving adventure called the Triple Seven Expedition. So we're doing seven skydives into seven continents uh, in the course of, uh, we're trying to do it in seven days, uh, which is gonna be a tall task for us. The current world record is seven months. So we're gonna beat that, but we'll see if we can get it in seven days. But the real thing behind it is that we're trying to raise $7 million for Folds of Honor, uh, which will equate to about 1,400 scholarships for Gold Star families. Gold Star families are the immediate families of service members who have died during military service. But Stark says the scholarships will also go to the families of police and firefighters who died in the line of duty. What's really cool is that this is going to sit in an account. And so as kids get older who have lost their father or their mother in the line of duty, are all of a sudden 18 and they want to go to college or they want to go to trade school, they're going to have fun sitting there from this trip and expedition that we do that they're able to go get an education. And so it's one of those things where, yes, it's happening, you know, in a constricted seven day timeline that we're trying to do this, but the ripple effect is going to extend hopefully decades into the future. Stark then explained how his military experience helped get him to where he is today. I think it's important that we step outside of our comfort zones and we do things that are uncomfortable because they're going to provide you levity in, in multiple different areas of life. And that's one of the things we try and strive for after we get out of the military is leading by example, do something extremely difficult over the course of a long period of time for a specific goal. The Triple Seven Expedition will take place in January 2023. To find out more about the adventure, you can visit LegacyExpeditions.net. Jason Perry, NTD News. There's no official explanation of the ceremonial folding of an American flag, but to many veterans, each fold has a special meaning. NTD's Arlene Richards has that story. For more than 200 years, the American flag has been a symbol of our nation's unity. It's been a source of pride and inspiration for millions of Americans across the country. By resolution of the Second Continental Congress, the flag was born in 1777 with 13 stars and 13 stripes. Each star and each stripe represented a colony united by the Declaration of Independence. At traditional ceremonies and funerals, Old Glory is meticulously folded 13 times. It is said that the United States is the only country that folds its flag in this manner. But the source and symbolism of the flag-folding procedure is largely unknown. Bo Davidson, host of Epoch TV's The Bo Show, paid tribute to an organization called the Folds of Honor. 
he participated in a flag-folding ceremony and explained what each fold has come to symbolize. The first fold of our flag is a symbol of life. The second fold is a symbol of our belief in the eternal life. The third fold is made in honor and remembrance of the veteran departing our ranks who gave a portion of life for the defense of our country to attain a peace throughout the world. The fourth fold represents our weaker nature. For as American citizens trusting in God, it is to him we turn in times of peace as well as in times of war for his divine guidance. The fifth fold is a tribute to our country. For in the words of Stephen Decatur, our country, in dealing with other countries, may she always be right. To find out what all 13 folds symbolize, watch the full segment of The Bow Show on Epoch TV. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Brooklyn Nets star guard Kyrie Irving, who was suspended a minimum of five games after the team said he was unfit to be associated with the team following the controversy of his recent social media post, has reportedly met with team, league, and union officials in recent days. An email from the NBA's Players Association to its members obtained by ESPN said a resolution could be coming very soon. The seven-time All-Star has already missed four games and the fifth will be Saturday, making Sunday against the Lakers the first game he could be eligible to play. Irving previously tweeted a link to a film called Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America. He has since apologized to all Jewish families and communities that were hurt by his post. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver has met with Irving and says he has no doubt that Irving is not anti-Semitic. And in baseball news, Houston Astros general manager James Click will not be back next season. Now this is a highly unusual move for a team that just won the World Series. Click took over in 2020 after the team had just fired former GM Jeff Luno in the wake of the team's sign-stealing scandal. The Astros had a very successful three-year run under his watch winning two division titles and two American League pennants in addition to this year's World Series. Click was at the general manager meetings in Las Vegas and said that his contract had expired on October 31st. He then rejected Houston's one-year contract offer. And for your sports viewing this evening, 16 teams are in action in the NBA, including the struggling Lakers taking on the Kings without superstar LeBron James. And in hockey, a quadruple header is scheduled for tonight, highlighted by the Seattle Kraken, winners of five straight games hosting the Minnesota Wild. And finally, for you college football fans, eighth-ranked USC plays Colorado at the LA Coliseum. And that's a wrap for sports. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Acock.